Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. Today, we're going to be talking about regulation. So before you throw your arms up in the air, go, oh, no, we don't want regulation, or yes, we do want regulation, or I hate regulation as a topic, have a listen to this, because this is a really interesting way of thinking about things. And this time, from our friend and colleague, Nitin Gao. Hi, Nitin. Hey, Derek. I was just going to hang up, and I heard uh, the word regulation, but I have to stay back. But really good to be here. <laughs> yes, you have to stay back because it is your thesis we are going to explore today, Nitin. So there is a cry for regulation, but what might this look like? And does it have to be regulations that mirror traditional institutional and government laws and belief systems? One has to remember because of the borderless aspect of the crypto world, it spans many countries, cultures and legal systems. So adhering to all of these different regulations sounds like chaos at best, or prohibitive at worst. I think we all acknowledge that the industry needs regulatory guide rails. But is there a better way to regulate? And might this be the power of community? So what are your thoughts on this? No, I think you captured well, I think written extensively about this, especially in terms of the crypto winter and what I have consistently labeled as contagion of incompetence. And that's, again, fueling uh, what you have seen this week and last week, uh, a heavy-handed approach from some of the College of Regulators around the world in dealing with this. And I think uh, if you look at, uh, and some of the prescriptive approach that I laid out in terms of crypto industry having a innovation narrative, as well as having a market structure, which is self-regulated, is the best pay way to do it in the sense that mm -hmm. why wait till the industry regulated itself, why not set an example of showcasing the transparency and everything that we talk about that blockchain is known for? Mm. And how can we sort of look into this? And so few efforts so far, right? Uh, I'll first talk about the inefficiency of regulating the space and sort of not factoring in the disruption and the innovation this industry brings. So we don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater uh, as an analogy and, and looking into this from a perspective of the fact that the amount of energy that's gone into it. So if you look at United States, for instance, and this is again, single jurisdiction, a large jurisdiction, and we can compare the same level of energy that Europe and Asia and different parts of Asia has expanded into this. So Congress until now, this is the United States, has introduced about 50 digital assets bills impacting 50. regulation, 50, uh, five zero. And this has been happening from past eight plus years in different capacity, trying to impact regulation for blockchain and central bank digital currency policies. The latest one, which was introduced this week was Digital Commodity Exchange Act, which proposes a single entity, something like a CFTC to have oversight over the entire industry per se. And of course there's turf war between various regulators, various agencies, and some bills include crypto taxation, some include CBDC, you know, central bank digital currency related bills, 
Some includes clarity on regulatory treatment of digital asset and digital securities. So there's a mix of all of these things. And oftentimes I look into the energy. And again, there's a voting process, in, of course, in the in Congress and Senate, and in some cases, House of Commons and House of Lords, depending on which jurisdiction. You have some you know, two-house system in most countries which opine on these things, and you have an army of staffers, army of think tanks, and army of who craft these bills. And I oftentimes ponder upon the amount of energy, time, and money that's gone into this ill-defined bills from people who don't fully understand the industry in mm, most cases. Mm, mm. And of course, we're getting better from that perspective. And then I look at what industry has done. I look at uh, you know, what the industry in the United States and globally have done. And for example, and in addition to what has happened from the regulatory agencies, there are global bodies like FATF that governs and that has opined on travel rule and what Basel has done in terms of potential treatment of digital assets and liquidity requirements. Uh, the Bureau of International Settlements uh, and IOSCO has talked about payments and global asset transfer. So there's there's a slew of all these mixed bag of things of opinions with no real concrete outcome as yet. And the the result of that has been, thou shall do what you've been doing so far for digital assets. So follow the travel rule for digital assets, follow the AML policy for digital assets. And while all that is good, I think all these have failed to fully understand what the industry is trying to do. So the industry itself, this is crypto industry, has crafted a few initiatives in absence of any single regulatory directive. So for example, US Trust. Uh, US Trust is a consortium of ecosystem players like Coinbase and BitGo and Galaxy Digitals of the world mm-hmm. who want to do business the right way. And they have formed an opinion where they will enforce travel rule, which prevents, or at least some level have some oversight into knowing the identity of people who are involved in transferring crypto between these known parties. So if you're part mm-hmm. of one agency, I'm part of say Coinbase and you're part of BitGo, we can exchange assets uh, and the system will figure out if you're part of one of these entities. And that way, the impl- implication is that you're identified KYC and, and or mm. know your customer, all the diligence that happens to. Then you have Blockchain Council, which is another entity that's trying to be the think tank and, and, and a voice. Again, this is US context. Uh, some of the exchanges in the US have looked into Coin Rating Council or CRC, uh, which has tried to uh, sort of define an additional asset or token to be a security. And if it's security, it would not be listed, which has come under fire with the recent Coinbase um, sort of uh, investigation from SEC. Mm. Uh, and again, but the industry has formed these sort of SROs. I think that while this is industry-led effort, we go back to our narrative of layer one and layer two having a nation state status where yeah. these are global communities. They can self-govern, self. And we have many projects who've utilized the governance tokens. These are tokens that vote similar to what the Congress and many of the legal sort of the you know, the congressional element that voted on a, on, a, on a particular bill. And in this case, all the projects that are perceived to be nefarious or may not have the right tokenomic systems or may not have the right governance systems. I think that you could sort of create a model which allowed the crypto native way to gate the community of ill-governed projects. And that, in my opinion, would be an effective way as would embody the ethos of industry, which is decentralization and community-driven approach. And that community that I'm talking about will make a decision on every project, which means that it's just like us. If I don't go to vote, I have no right to complain, right? And and in, in many cases, I think that there is already a mechanism when, for example, staking is voting, uh, you have governance tokens that allow you to vote for a certain project. Yeah. And I believe that if we are 
sort of settling in on many of the layer one protocols to, again, attract talent, attract capital. We've said this many times on the show. Then why not introduce that model that if you want to run a DAO or a smart contract, then before you run it on the system, it of course goes through its due diligence of code and, and audit and everything else, but the community has to vote on if that DAO is allowed to do business in that community. And if it looks nefarious, it sounds nefarious, then the community rejects it. Keeping the environment clean, free of nefarious activities, free of, free of fraud, free of any of the other elements. And I think that's one way to deal with it, which I think is a clean, transparent way to look at it. I'll take a pause here, Derek, to see if that made sense. That makes enormous sense. And this is particularly exciting because as we talked about on the intro, you know, this whole collection of different cultures, legal systems and, and values is not applicable to a global solution. And yep. if we can get to a point where these sovereign states that we call them, these big layer one protocols and these stakers, in other words, the community that runs them can actually set up a system where the maybe it's the um, Ethereum um, developers are able to determine whether this DAO and these people are appropriate to be on the platform, whether this DEX is operating correctly and the algorithms are correctly. Two things happen then. One, you get validation on that, on that major um, layer one protocol. And the second thing that happens is that that layer one protocol builds trust. It builds brand, it builds a acceptance level. If other layer one protocols aren't doing the same, they're not gonna be well trusted. They're not gonna be as accepted as well. And they're not gonna be used as much, which means that you create a competitive environment that these big layer one protocols start becoming solidly self-regulated because trust is generated. I love the idea and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and I also I think transparency attracts capital. That's true in any single market in the world that if things are transparent, it attracts capital. Of course, things are becoming a bit muddy. But the original intention was that, you know, any any market that has transparent rules, any country that has rule of law uh, is oftentimes rated high as a better place to live because there is a rule of engagement. You engage yes. and then you do. And, and I think we simply need to adopt the same age-old principles, of course, in a digital format and do these things. And I think, at least in my opinion, Derek, this is becoming increasingly important as the crypto emerges as fifth asset class. And I'll describe in a few minutes what that means, both for the industry as well as for traditional finance and implications on regulation, because um, the, at some at some point you have to get your arms around this, uh, you know, only because now you have institutional investors and that Im implies that as by extension, the industry is getting behind this. Uh, and if we were to regulate this industry with old rules, then I think, yes. you know, it doesn't do justice to, the, the power of the industry. And I don't think it'll deliver the promise that that blockchain led innovation set out to do. Very much so. And of course, there's there's a few things happening here. You know, there's a there's a fight to be the first regulator, which is why America's created 50 set of regulations already. <laughs> um, Europe is seeking to regulate too. Obviously, South Korea is doing regulations. Um, some countries have just regulated it out of existence um, or just turned around and said, we don't want it at all. Now, now, the sad thing about all this mismatch of regulations is that if this industry could both have its own regulation system and prove it's working, then those countries that are just ruling it out may actually find it acceptable. That kind of brings me to this other area that you've talked about, and that is the coupling of this industry to TradFi, which we've talked about often. 
And, and your view that this coupling that's occurring strongly is a lot because some nearly 75% of all token transactions are in fact stable coins, fiat right. in a digital format. And so, so how do we decouple from this fiat environment? How do we stop valuing everything we do in this space on fiat? And does that help us um, become self-regulatory and, and stand alone from traditional finance, do you think? Yeah, I think that's a juicy topic. And, and I actually recently finished an article on this topic, which should publish any time uh, this week. So a few things, right? Let, let's take, let me take a step back and talk about convergence first, and then we talk about Ooh. decoupling and why it's important. Historically, we've had five assets, you know, four asset classes, and we view, at least not when I say view, crypto as in, in the industry is sort of emerging as a fifth asset class. So what are the four asset classes? You have equities, which are stocks. You have fixed income and debt, bonds. You have market, you know, money market and cash equivalents, another asset class of li purely liquid. And then you have alts, all alternatives. These are real estate, tangible assets, uh, private equity. Everything that doesn't fit in the, in the top three is plugged into alternative asset classes. And in some cases, people have begun to even classify crypto as alts, though I think the industry is realizing that that may not be the right thing to do only because of its behavior and everything else. Mm. So as an experiment this week, I said, I will not read any crypto news because you know you get lost in this rabbit hole. And I'm like, I'm going to take a week off from not understand reading what's happening in the crypto world and just go about my business of just reading good old Wall Street Journal for traditional finance. <laughs> And here's what I read in the past two days. And I think I may, this, this uh, abstinence from reading crypto news may just die tomorrow. Is the first thing is crypto Monday, crypto selects, is selected by BlackRock by providing Aladdin clients access to crypto trading and custody via Coinbase Prime. So, you, you know, then you hear Brevin Howard scores the largest crypto hedge fund launch ever. <laughs> Yeah, You know, it's a fund that raised more than a billion dollars in this market for a flagship crypto vehicle. Then you hear about the Bitcoin prices pulled back ahead of U.S. inflation report. This was this morning. And then you have, again, yesterday's U.S. Treasury Department, the OFAC, uh, the Office of Foreign Account and Control, has added Tornado Cash and all associated addresses to be sanctions list. So you get the picture that no matter where I go, crypto follows you, which means to me, we are in sort of a convergence phase that there's an acceptance as investment from, from institutional investors to embrace and adapt this new asset class because obviously they see value in it. And not just value, but they say demand in it. But we've also discussed, and again, you've rattled a few things, 75% of all transactions are stable coins. On this show, we've talked about the fact that stable coins bring in liquidity and provide sort of uh, dependency on the global macro. And, you know, uh, and so, again, we've discussed decoupling too, which is as an independent fifth asset class, relieving, you know, relying on its own crypto macro. So, in, you, know, what I mean by, you know, what I mean by crypto macro is you have new economies, you have new products, you have new ecosystems, you have new tokens. You also have new supply of truly liquid tokens that gets created. Uh, mm -hmm. Exactly similar to our world, where you have new industries and you have money supply and you have equation in terms of interest rates. And those financial primitives are emerging in crypto space as well. So crypto can stand on its own economic grounds with its own economic values. After all, you know, crypto has its own economic system, you know, and creation of, again, new industries and asset liquidity, all that is a part of, of, of this whole thing. So I came up with three theses, which I think it's really important for the crypto industry to decouple itself 
um, only because of the fact that you know, in 2017, Bitcoin was viewed as, and we've talked about this again in the past, as inflation hedge. This was article after article came about that compared Bitcoin to gold and, and how it's similar and how it's different. Mm. We looked into stock to flow model. And at that point, it's completely correlated. People are looking at this and saying, this is an yeah. asset that gives you a diversification to your overall portfolio, that it's a risk-off asset uh, that gives you some hedges, hedging against the... Uh, and if you look at it now, uh, it's strongly correlated to risk yes. on assets, which is equities. How did we get here? How, how did this happen in just a matter of four or five years? And I believe there's a lot to be said about how the liquidity has flown into traditional markets and liquidity sucked out because of the global macro situation. This is inflation and, and quantitative mm. tightening and, and other factors that go with it. So I think it's important that the uh, the industry itself aims to decouple, one, because it needs to have its own value system. And for example, the Bitcoin, my, I have three theses around this. The first thesis is that the Bitcoin-led revolution was meant to change the financial system. And with the recent turn of events, it not only looks like the current system, but also strongly correlates to a risk on asset like equities. And that needs to change. Mm. Otherwise, this becomes too muddy and becomes as complex as traditional assets are for the intended audience, which is common man. Second thesis is the first step in solving a problem is to understand the problem. So liquidity risk enables, for example, I'm looking at liquidity. It enables, again, seamless medium of exchange and provides fungibility to various asset classes. Uh, and for crypto to decouple from traditional finance, it needs to address liquidity. It cannot rely upon traditional finance, which is stablecoin and bringing in US dollar and fiat-based liquidity in the system because that linkage strengthens as more and more liquidity flows into the system. The third thesis, after we address liquidity, um, any functioning market, uh, I'm, I'm happy to go into detail a bit later, uh, any functioning market needs a valuation mechanism to determine price and value. Price is what you pay, value is what you get. And how we price and value assets truly determines the investment potential and attitudes of people who are investing into it. So these, if we address these three theses, and I will, I will give some prescriptive approach on that as, as after taking a pause, I think needs to be addressed. Otherwise, this will be a cyclical phenomenon that we will go through this you know, every three or four years. And I think it'll drastically stymie the industry, not only because of the fact that it'll have heavy-handed regulation because it's merging with the traditional finance, it'll have to be governed like traditional finance. But also I think uh, that the industry has to emerge on its own, with its own value system, and not reliant upon the value system of traditional finance. Again, a short pause, get your thoughts, if that made sense. Nitin, in, in March of, of 2021, um, I remember the report came out that Coinbase was just simply providing its statistics, its quarterly statistics. And it said that, that around 60% of all of its transactions were now institutional or large transactions. And so that hasn't gone backwards since, it's only gone up, up since. So if yeah. we're getting such large institutions from TradFi, well, they've got to come from somewhere, they've come from traditional finance, um, and they're deploying such large amounts of money into this asset space, isn't that the problem? And of course, the great advantage that we've got this inflow of capital at the same time. But isn't it just the alliance of these giant institutions that are now investing in this space, and then when they need to, divesting from the space, 
that's causing the correlation? Uh, absolutely. That's, that's not the contributing factor, right? This is, again, uh, the news factor that says Bitcoin prices pulled back ahead of US inflation report. Uh, mm. If Bitcoin is decoupled and it was truly a global currency, then it won't really matter what US inflation is going through. Mm. If this is truly a currency that is adapted by global uh, entities in, in that nature. Second thing I think is demand supply curve. If there's enough demand of Bitcoin, and if the demand of Bitcoin is, is more than that of US dollar, which is not the case today, mm -hmm. uh, then again, it would stand on its own. Second mm. thing I think is that the decision to invest or divest by institutional investors is through traditional lens. Their risk parameters, uh, the value at risk models that they have yes. employed earlier, the predictive models that look into various metrics and factors that drives the decision of traditional finance and these institutional investors because the lens they're looking at these asset classes is very singular. Whereas as me and you and, and the team at Portal have discussed this in the past, is we want a multifaceted view of this industry. We've looked at code bases, we've looked at social sentiments, we looked at at least eight factors that go into valuation of these assets, only because we didn't want to be simply the folks who are reading the charts and predicting the movement of these assets. And that is why I think that if we have to completely rewrite the world and financial system, it has to stand on its own. Of course, there will be an exchange from traditional finance, which is there today. And the primary vehicle for exchange is fiat. And I would imagine that this convergence that we talk about should not be happening at the, at the business unit level. The convergence, in my opinion, should be happening at the technology level where an asset from one industry can move into asset classes of different industries and be an, and their value be understood, which means that you could take a fraction or a tokenized ETF and eventually uh, you know, collateralize it on Aave protocol for lending and borrow Bitcoin against it because Bitcoin has its own value. And to get to that point, I think that there has to be massive investment in building the infrastructure. So at least in my opinion, I think there's less focus in the industry on building that infrastructure, there's a rush to exposure, which leads to buying assets, which leads to simply plugging liquidity, as opposed to saying, let's invest in the infrastructure, because that will fundamentally change the way we uh, not only trade and, and view assets, but also the financial primitives of the fifth asset class and the traditional finance, I think. So... It, you know, even if we create a major infrastructure change and this industry considers itself operating on its own set of parameters, of course, outside the fact that we're all humans, we operate in a tribal manner, et cetera, et cetera, which is always built into what we develop. <laughs> it doesn't get to a point where we, the industry itself has to be bigger than, than the US dollar uh, and operated globally before it will stop these surges and drops and alliance with traditional finance. Because the way I look at it at the moment, there's waves of money that sweep in into yeah. the industry when it's risk on, and there's waves of money that sweep out when it's risk off. And the industry, poor thing, if it's a creature, is sitting there going, <laughs> I'm just doing my job. I'm just creating new products, <laughs> new methodologies, new marketplaces, new solutions. And this wave of money comes in and then it comes racing out. And it's doing that because the industry is fairly liquid 
and because it's just considered another asset. How do you stop that? Yeah, no, no. I think, uh, you know, again, when I say uh, that the, the global commerce depends on US dollar and it's the US dollar strength as a global reserve, I think having diversity for the asset classes certainly help because it helps us diversify and look into various macro factors uh, around this whole thing. And and I think if you look at, again, I look at the market structure that's evolving in pure crypto. So you have D5 uh, protocols like automated market makers, which provide liquidity. You have lending protocols. You have, you know, ability for you to escrow your accounts, staking protocols. Uh, in fact, I think the total, uh, you know, some amazing numbers, right? Uniswap processed a trillion dollars in transactions last year. Uh, the bridges, wow. which yeah. allow transfer of assets from one ecosystem to another ecosystem, this close about $200 billion trapped in those bridges where assets are locked in one and issued another asset, which means there's cross-chain commerce, happening in a truly mm. digital form. There are close to about a, a million plus depositors in these bridges. And I looked into bridges because of the recent hack with Nomad. I was trying to understand the intricacies of why and what kind of movement of assets. And that's essentially movement of liquidity. Again, I'm I'm not opposed to, for example, you know, having a, a competing currency like USD and Bitcoin, for example. USD still has the global commerce that's conducted in uh, USD and having another currency, which will only provide us options and competitive element for each of them to be at their best because everybody's competing for the same market share uh, that, that needs to go. So I think that diversity is a great thing. I also have looked into the market structure of crypto itself. So for example, uh, bridging, right? Bridging today is about $200 billion, uh, which are sort of, uh, you know, are, are, are on the bridges, which essentially is moving liquidity from one ecosystem to another ecosystem. And with this recent Nomad hack, I looked into what are these assets? Why are they in these bridges? And I learned that it's essentially a mm. uh, movement of liquidity from one ecosystem to another ecosystem, because let's say Bitcoin and Ether or Solana, for example, are truly liquid assets and they need to be utilized because they don't have enough either utilization in one ecosystem and the utilization or there's wow. need for capital in a different ecosystem. I think it's fascinating. I also found mm. that the total amount of transactions processed by a decentralized exchange like Uniswap has been has reached a trillion dollars, uh, you know, in the last year. So I think this is emerging market structure for crypto, and whether this money sloshing in and sloshing out by institutional investors, I think it's a phenomenon that will uh, persist for some time till the industry has either enough liquidity or enough either critical mass to withstand on its own. Mm. Uh, and I think that's just a matter of time, which we have seen, like, you know, at, at its peak, it was $3 trillion industry in which I think practically it was impossible to acquire a crypto company. Today, they're cents to a dollar, but when at, at the market high, it was practically impossible. And I think, um, you know, uh, it, it may take time till the industry goes to a point where it can be in this commanding position because it has enough liquidity that it does not need any more liquidity uh, you know, from uh, the traditional fiat. And I think that the investment, especially in the VC community, trying to invest into these amazing projects, uh, both in metaversical sense, which is different asset classes, uh, I think is instrumental in building that foundation and that infrastructure that will eventually facilitate that massive growth and critical mass, the industry. And until then, I think uh, that it'll be attractive. It'll still have institutional players. Uh, my only uh, you know, foresight in this case is that what used to be a moat, which is regulatory and compliance, can be a hurdle for the same industry. So if you look mm -hmm. at the historical element, the fact that financial services industry has has enjoyed a certain privilege because, you know, the cost of doing business or cost of entry or barriers to entry was quite high. 
because of the regulatory modes that many of the large financial institutions have 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 enjoyed. And I think the same modes um, that may prevent and that may make it exorbitant and quite prohibitive for them to enter the space in a meaningful way. And then you have this emergence of newer sort of class of uh, institutional investors who are only focused on crypto, like you are, essentially. And so I think mm. I see that middle ground sort of building up that sort of bridge the gap. And my hope is that eventually the industry becomes big enough for it to, it to survive on its own, if that makes sense. Makes great sense. And Nitin, on the way there, I hope to see the community, and I'm talking about the communities and the many communities, um, do exactly what you're talking about. Create those regulations, create the guidelines, create the quality system that they expect their players will operate under and enable that as a set of what we traditionally would call regulations, but there are a set of guidelines and, and, and guards that can occur. If that happens whilst this large inflows and outflows are occurring, maybe that will dampening and ultimately help the decoupling that'll occur in due course. Nitin, fascinating paper. As always, I enjoyed reading both of them. Where can the listening audience um, find those papers and also have the opportunity to read them? Yeah, no, absolutely. I write uh, again at Cointelegraph, but I share the content on Twitter and on LinkedIn. So the best way to connect with LinkedIn, sometimes I'll self-publish depending on the schedules of the publishers on LinkedIn. The idea is to get the content out. Uh, so several platforms, but I think LinkedIn and Twitter will, will be the conduit to any of those platforms, I think. Yep. Terrific. Well, that's where you can go and connect up with Nitin on LinkedIn and, uh, and follow the papers along the way. Well, mate, until next week, um, may you have an enjoyable week. I, I, I don't recommend you just don't read about crypto for the following week. I think it's very important you continue to read about crypto. <laughs> can't can't escape it. Can't happening. run away. You, you, can run, you can hide. You know, you, you can run, but you can't hide. So. Yeah, exactly. All right. We'll see you <laughs> Thanks, next Thanks, Derek. Thanks Good again for the conversation. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive and engaged. See you next week.